We came down yesterday. We had a wonderful day at uh, the beach in Galveston today. It was beautiful. Thank you for Scott and Heil's hospitality. Um, yesterday was Stephanie and I's 27th anniversary. Give us a hand. That's it. I mean, the church needs to celebrate the success stories like that more. Um, it, it got me thinking about the connections I have with this church. When we pulled in, I, I wasn't recognizing the outside. I've been here before, but I wasn't recognizing the outside. But when I walked through the door and saw the inside, I was like, yes, all the memories came back. When I was here the first time, I was my kid's age, 13 years old, 14 years old. And that was when Steve Curtright pastored here. Does anybody remember when Steve Curtright pastored? Any of you go far that, that far back? I was here. My mom and dad were dear friends with, with Steve and Debbie and, and Jim and Diane. I hope I might get to see them maybe tomorrow. Uh, I was just a little guy. And turns out about 10 years later, Steve Curtright would marry. He was the pastor that officiated at Stephanie and I's, uh, our, our, our wedding. And just found out tonight that he officiated High Elves and Scots too. So fast forward another 10 or 12 years. I was back here with Cal when Calvin Burrell was pastoring. My kids, who are 14 now, are just babies. They were just born. And uh, I was here then for special services. And then fast forward another 15 years, and Calvin Burrell would retire from the editor's position of the Bible Advocate, and I would take his place. So we're all interconnected, aren't we? And I appreciate what Brother Ellis said about the church and the generations, that our lives are interconnected and we need each other so badly. That's partly what I want to talk about tonight. Um, you, saw, you saw on maybe Facebook, maybe in your flyer, that the, the, the title of the message tonight is The Word of Life. And we're going to have two parts on that. We're going to talk about believing tonight, and tomorrow we're going to talk about becoming. And it all has to do with this word of life. The motto, I don't know if anybody of you knows the motto of the Bible Advocate. It's in the front cover of the Bible Advocate. Does anybody know what it is? Advocating the Bible, representing the church, and glorifying the God of grace and truth. That is what the Bible Advocate's all about. And I think what's made it such a, a nice fit for me is because that's been a passion of mine since I was a little kid. I love the Word of God. I wanted to know the author who gave us this Word. And I wanted more than anything else, even as a young, a young uh, boy, I wanted, I wanted to help God's people. I wanted to encourage them. I wanted to minister to them. And I'm, I'm doing that my, really for the rest of my life, and I'm doing it in a new capacity with the Bible Advocate. 
So tonight, I'm really sharing what I believe is essential for all of us, and that is to find a greater relationship through our Lord Jesus Christ and through His Word. I hope you have a Bible tonight. Do you? Let's open it. Let's open it to 2 Timothy. Let's look into the Word of Life and see what it has to teach us. 2 Timothy 3. Let's start reading with verse 14. This is a familiar text. It really is one of those verses that gets right down to the nitty-gritty of what the Bible is all about, what the Bible is and what it does. It says, 2 Timothy 3, I'm still getting a little echo. Is it bothering? Are you guys hearing it? Is it bothering anybody? If I move back behind the speakers, will it help a little bit? Um, verse 14, it says, You, however, Paul is talking to Timothy, You, however, continue in the things which you have learned and become convinced of, knowing of whom you have learned them. That from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. He's basically saying, from a little guy, you've been taught the Word of God. You know what it says. And in this Word is the wisdom that leads you to salvation. What do we know about Timothy? What do we know about his parentage? from the very first chapter of this same book. He had a couple really important ladies in his life, didn't he? You, does anybody know their names? Lois and Eunice. Eunice, I believe, was his mom, and I think Lois was his grandma. And these generations that the brother, these were the sticks, the big old sticks, Alice, in Timothy's life. And Paul recognizes it and build, is building on this relationship that Timothy already has in the Word because he had a relationship with his mother who had a relationship with the Word, who has her relationship with the Word because her mother had a relationship with, with the Word, and the generations are held together. And what are they held together by? The God that gave us His Word. Timothy, is his life is saturated by the Word of God. And I thank the Lord that there was Calvin Burroughs and Steve Kurtwrights and my parents and, and elders going back even further, men and women who I know have made me what I am in the Lord. They're the reason why I'm here because they are who taught me the Word, who the Holy Spirit worked through. We need each other. The church needs each other desperately. Reading this, thinking about generations, thinking about our childhoods, thinking about our churches as a gathering of generations and listening to Paul talk to Timothy about the sacred writings, about Scripture and how they can lead us to salvation, how they can fill us with wisdom. Uh, it, it makes me think about the challenges that we're facing as a culture. The challenges that we face culturally 
are inevitably challenges that we face in our church. Because everybody in this church is out there in the culture too. And there is a battle going on for your minds. There's a battle going on for our children's minds. We've got a couple here. It's good to see Jason and Rose, who I've worked with for years in youth ministry. They are superstars of youth ministry. And they can tell you probably better than anybody, anybody working in youth ministry can tell you the battle that's going on for the minds of our children. A couple years ago, a sociologist named Christian Smith and his team did a study. It actually spanned for a decade studying teenagers and their habits and their thinking and, and what they believe in and, and, and their relationship with the culture and their relationship with the church. The, the, the information that came out of the study was vast, and it's actually had a couple follow-ups, but in one of the, la- the last, uh, <clears throat> last updates, and I was just reading about it a couple weeks ago, they were saying that among Catholic youth, we're not Catholics here, but, but among Catholic youth, teenagers who are Catholics, 50% of them will have left the faith by the time they're in their 20s. Not just left Catholicism, left the faith. Now, Protestants score a little bit better. Evangelicals score a little bit better. I hope Church of God's Seventh Day scores better still. Can we afford to lose half of our Timothys to the world? And yet, the Church of God's Seventh Day is prone for this too. I was just talking to a, a, a leader in ministry in the church uh, yesterday. And she's the generation under me. She's a millennial, the old end of the millennials. I'm kind of uh, right there in the middle of the Gen X, I think they call me. And I was saying, I look around at the kids I grew up with, and it's mind-blowing the number of them that left the church. And she's like, oh, she's, I was thinking the same thing as a millennial. I'm seeing so many, and we are talking about the, the generations. And, you know, I'm not sure that the answer is really to talk about which generation we're in as much as it is to talk about what Brother Ellis was saying, that we're a multi-generational church. We need each other. We need Lois and Eunice and Timothy. We need everybody together because the world is trying to rob us, and I think it begins by stealing this from it stills this, the word of life. The very next verse here, it says, all scripture is inspired of God. How much scripture? All scripture is inspired by God. This word inspired, I like, I don't use the NIV to preach with generally, but I like how they translate this word inspired. It literally means God breathed. All scripture is the breath of God, the life of God. This isn't paper and ink, brothers and sisters. The Holy Spirit speaks to us through these words. And tonight, I'm hoping, and Brother Ellis, I think I can do it in less than an hour and a half or two hours. Um, I, I, I hope that we can feel the breath of God on us tonight through his words. He says it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And that's the kind of the, the, little, the little phrase I want to I jump in on, this training in righteousness. 
All Scripture is God-breathed. It not only gives us wisdom to salvation, but it trains us in righteousness. One of the other things that this sociologist Christian Smith discovered in his research was that the average Christian teenager, they have what he calls moralistic, theistic deism. And what it is, <clears throat> MTD, he calls it for short, what it is is that the blend of their church life and the blend of public life has created this sort of deistic religion, and it basically comes down to when he asks them questions, the more specific it gets about truth claims, the less they know. The more vague it is, the more they, they, they grab hold onto it. So in other words, it comes down to they value happiness. I believe in personal happiness. Second thing they believe in, be nice. Be happy, be nice, and it's good. God is there if you need him. This is what he calls the religion of the youth of America. I think it's the religion of our own youth. If this breath of God loses its place in our churches, why the Bible Advocate is such a good fit for me is because I love God's Word and I want to use every opportunity to say, hey, this is not just paper and ink. This is God's breath for us. It's His life. What did He breathe unto, into the dust of the earth to make us living souls? He breathed his life into us. He breathed the word into us. My wife and I <clears throat> were at a restaurant. I'm going to tell this story more fully tomorrow, but I want to introduce, do you remember the young lady's name, Stephanie? Tori. Her name was Tori. We met her at a little restaurant in Springfield, Missouri. Late on a Saturday night, we were looking for a steak, <laughs> and we ended up in this kind of a, uh, well, it was like a sports bar. Was it even a sports bar? It was like, a, I don't know how to describe it. It's not where a pastor ought to be with his wife on Saturday night. Lots of loud, lots of loud pop music and, and lots of kids. <clears throat> but our waitress got to talking to us because, well, we didn't order bacon bits on our baked potatoes, which she found unusual for the both of us to say no bacon bits because we don't eat pork. It's something we've learned from the word, and so we don't eat pork. And she found it unusual. She had never run across anybody. She says, I was going through different things that, you know, you can't be a vegetarian because you ordered a steak. And it can't be an allergy issue because surely you're both not allergic. Well, her question ended up opening up an opportunity for us to talk about Jesus with her. And when I asked her to tell me a little bit about her own story, she gave me the story of moralistic, theistic deism. She was raised in the Catholic Church all through her teenage years. Soon as she left home, she left her faith. And I said, have you ever heard, I think actually Stephanie asked her, have you ever heard of the story of Adam and Eve? And she's like, no, I'm not familiar with that story. I said, what did you learn at your church? She said, well, there was a lot of rituals I didn't understand. But we didn't really talk about the Bible much. Well, that's what happens. When we lose the breath of life in us through the word, 
When we lose the, the order it, it moves us in, what prevents us from just doing whatever we want, going wherever we need? We have the internal compass in us of some sort, and we just kind of make do. And we really don't need these generations in this body. It's interesting that in 2 Timothy 3, this little chunk of scripture at the end of the chapter that we just read, and I'll, con- I'll finish it with verse 17, he, he, this, all of scripture, the breath of God is given to us for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That's his perfect. That's its, its purpose is to equip us to every good work. And if it's not in our lives, we're not going to be equipped to every good work. We're not going to hear its reproof when we wander off this way with the culture. We're not going to hear its teaching when we're trying to learn what is right and wrong, what God desires for us. What's interesting about the text, though, is where it comes. And most times I've heard 2 Timothy 3 taught, it's either the last part that talks about all scripture or the first part that talks about perilous times. You know the first part of the chapter I'm talking about? How does Paul begin? But realize this, that in the last days, uh, the New American Standard says difficult. I like the King James Version. Perilous. Perilous times will come. For men will be... Let me ask you, listen to these very carefully and tell me, does this sound familiar? Difficult times will come. Perilous times. For men will be lovers of self. Lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than love of lovers of God, holding a form of godliness but denying its power. Does that sound familiar? Are these, are, you think Paul, when he says in the last days it's going to get like this, do you think he might be thinking about our own times? I imagine a lot of this was true of his own times. Boy, but it is especially true of our times. And isn't it interesting, in fact, by the time he gets down and starts talking to Timothy about what he learned as a child, the very verse before that, verse 13, he says, evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse deceiving and being deceived. He paints paints this picture of culture that's actually, it's perilous indeed, and yet it's the culture that we live in. And then, and then right then, is when Paul steps in to talk to Timothy about what? The Word. What's the antidote to this mess? What is the antidote? What is the cure for this mess? Salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. This gets to the, the heart of this. This book, it's not a rule book. It's not a history book. It's not a science book. It has all kinds of those elements to it. But what is this book? It's a story about the God of Israel, the God of creation. This little girl that we met in the restaurant didn't know Adam and Eve. She didn't know she was a creature of God. She didn't know she was created. If we don't know the story of Adam and Eve, we don't know that we're created beings. 
And the world tells us every day that it's just by chance that we happen to be here. And if it's just by chance, do we have meaning, purpose, value? I don't see how. But if we have a creator who loves us, I see all kinds of purpose and meaning and value in everyone, whether or not they are Christians or part of this crew that Paul calls going from bad to worse. The antidote to this peril, and a brother was up here talking about him, else I think it was you again, I keep referring to you at the beginning, talking about, you look, at, look on TV, look on Facebook, look at, and we see perilous times. What is the antidote to that? Brothers and sisters, this is the antidote. Off by ourselves in our house, read it there. But brothers and sisters, we need more of this. We need more generations coming together, open mic or otherwise, talking about the Word, going back to the Word, studying the Word. And that's what I want to do tonight. I want to talk about hearing the Word. He says here that, uh, that this wisdom that he's learned from the sacred writings came from this salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. This is the story of Scripture. Scripture isn't, isn't a rule book. It's a, it's a book about a relationship with the God who made us. It's a book about that God manifesting himself as Jesus Christ to save the whole world. That's what this book is about. And everywhere we turn, we find it. And not just that, we find this instruction, this training in righteousness. And I want to go back and just share a story with you, a story you're familiar with, but I want to look at it afresh in light of this idea that the Word of God, this breath of God for us, is about bringing us to a righteousness that begins by us being able to believe, to believe in Jesus Christ. And Paul says in Romans, and in, in, as I'm quoting this, you can be running back in your Bible to Genesis 15. Run back to Genesis 15 with me. And remember the verse that Paul tells uh, the Romans. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. We, before we get to faith, we got to hear about it. And before we hear about it, we got to get this in us, don't we? That's why the Word is so important. And I want to show you experience about how Abraham got this Word into him. This training in righteousness that the Bible gives us, hopefully we'll get some training in righteousness. Isaiah was dealing with a religious community that was very unrighteous. They were religious, but they really didn't have a great relationship with their maker and redeemer. And he says, you who seek after righteousness, go back to Abraham and Sarah. Go back to their story. That's where you came from. That was the generation before you. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to go back to the story of Abraham. And we're going to jump around a few chapters here, but we're going to start in chapter 15. It says, after these things, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. That's where I want to start. I want you to close your eyes for a minute. The beauty of the Bible is that you can put yourself in the story. We need to enter the story together tonight, okay? And we need to know it's not just ink on paper. This is the breath of God. This is God's word to each of us. Okay, open your eyes. The word of the Lord has come to you. And what does the word of the Lord Three things. 
Do not fear, Abraham. Number one. I am a shield to you. And your reward shall be very great. That last line can actually be translated one of two ways. The other way is, I am your great reward. That's what some other translations say. But either way, don't be afraid. I am your shield. What does a shield do? Your protection. There's going to be a reward. There's a reward in this. Whether that reward is God or what God's going to give, either way, it's all reward, right? Is this a word we need to hear? This is the word of the Lord to us. If we live in perilous times, what's the first word of instruction, the first word of teaching we need from God? If we live in perilous times, if our children, literally, we don't know if they're going to make it to their 20s without losing their faith because our culture is so corrosive that they're going to be literally absorbed in it. What do we need from God? What's the word we need from God? I think the word we need from God, brothers and sisters, is don't be afraid. Fear is the great enemy of faith. It's just the great enemy of faith. And yet it's something that we all go through. I ran across a line. I haven't confirmed it, but I ran across something on the Internet. It must be true. Uh, since I saw it on Facebook, it's got to be true. Um, but this man said he went through the Bible and counted all the times where it says don't be afraid or don't fear or something along those lines. And he says he counted 365 of them. In other words, the word of the Lord to us every day, <laughs> once every day, is don't be afraid. Because fear kills faith. Fear moves us away from God. The next thing. I am a shield to you. I like just the very first two words. I am. What is God doing here? He, he tackles the fear. He says, get the fear out. Stop looking at the fear and look where? At me. I am. This is, later on, this would become, we would hear this, God speak this to Moses. I am that I am. I exist. I am all there is. Everything that is is because of me, including you. I am. And because I am, I'm a shield. I have, I, I, my translation is, don't be afraid, don't be scared, I have your back. I am here. And third, there is a reward. I, I love what Abraham does, because I think this is so real. What I love about the Bible is it's just so real. It's just so true. Abraham just starts gushing. <laughs> he just starts dumping. He says, since you have, uh, Abraham said, oh, Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? In other words, some stranger is his heir. And Abraham said, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. What I love about Abraham, and we should not find fault with Abraham here, the word of the Lord comes to him and addresses him and says, don't be afraid, I am here, I am your safety, I have a reward for you. Abraham, you know what he puts out there? 
He puts out his fears. He puts out his fear. He, Lord, okay, but I don't have, to, what are you going to give me? I, I'm childless. I don't have an heir. In this time especially, we don't think about it as much today, but in this time, that would basically saying, I have no future. I don't have a child. I have no future. I have nothing to leave. No one to leave my heritage to. My relationship with you two. What does he say next? And behold, the word of the Lord came to him again. I like this story. If you'll, the, the next BA that's coming out, you'll probably be getting in your mailboxes next week. How many of you get the BA? Oh, good. If you don't get the BA, I see a bunch of copies out here. I love that the church bought a bunch of copies. So everybody who uh, doesn't get one can. But if you'd like one sent to your mailbox, please get with me and give me your address. I'll get you set up just like that. I'll have it set up Monday. Um, so a little, little pitch for the Bible Advocate real quick. But the word of the Lord comes a second time. I actually talk about this in my first word of the next, this next BA on faith, faith alone. The word of the Lord comes to Abraham twice. The first time is not enough. We go into the word, and sometimes we get a glimpse and we walk away. When we need to go back again and again and again to get the complete word from God. And the second word is, I like, after God gives him a general understanding to not be afraid that God is present with him and that he is safe in God and that there is a reward for him. And Abraham dumps out his fears and, and really just places his need. This is my need, Lord, that the word of the Lord comes back again. And this time he says... This man will not be your heir. This, this guy from Damascus. You know, the whole world's going crazy in Damascus right now. You know that. You know, this story is still going on. I mean, that's what makes it so incredible. It gives me shivers. Damascus was in the news back then. It's still in the news because this story is going to continue until the Lord returns and sets his kingdom up. It's exciting. This guy from Damascus, he's not going to be your heir. You've, you've put that together. See, this is Abraham's solution. I've got to have somebody. I've got to have a manager, right? Bring somebody in. God says it's not going to go that way. I like the sister who testified earlier. Um, it's not about us. It's about him. Even when I'm obeying, it's not about me. It's about him. If we're living in the spirit, according to the word. And God is basically looking at Abraham's plan and saying, this isn't going to be how it is, Abraham. It's not going to be this way. And he takes him out. He says, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, now, it's interesting, he took him outside. I guess he's been, he's been in the tent. I like these little, dish, these little details because it makes me stop and say, oh, well, he, oh, now we're outside. Where, where were we before? Well, he's in the tent. What was he doing in the tent? Maybe he's laying there in bed. You ever lay there in bed and kind of pray and then you sort of fall asleep while you're praying? I mean, that's kind of maybe where he was at. He was at the end of the day. And then he says, hey, come outside. Get outside. And he goes outside and he looks up. He says, look at the stars. Count them. Can you count them? If you're able to count them, he said, 
so shall your descendants be. Now, what has God just done to Abraham here? He, he said, don't be afraid. Okay, Lord, I'm not going to be afraid. I am. I'm present. Okay, I, Lord, you're with me. I'm going to give you a reward. Okay, you're going to give me a reward. Abraham, nothing at all that you have planned is part of my plan. I've got something totally different in mind. You don't have an heir, right? I'm going to give you one from your own body and go take a look outside. That's how many generations. That's how many kids and their kids and their kids going all the way down to Lois and Eunice and Timothy and to me and you and the little kid that was sound asleep up here. He, he left. I, was, I remember doing that when I was that big. Conking out, conking out in the front row of the church. What a great place to conk out. He says, in other words, he's just blown up Abraham. He's just given him something. He's given him a promise that's just outlandish. He's given him a future and a life that is just like, uh, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to do that. What do you do? In the face of that. Anybody have a word? What do you do in the face of what God has just done here? You only have really two choices. You either believe or you don't. You either believe in this life, this crazy future, or, or you don't. Well, Abraham is called the father of the faith for good reason because at the end of that, Abraham, it says, and he believed. <laughs> it says, I just love how blunt it is. Then he believed in the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Remember I said, you know, all Scripture, one of its purposes is to train us in righteousness. Well, here's a good picture that the Word gives us of what that righteousness looks like. Fundamentally, this righteousness is you trusting the I am to do what you cannot possibly do. And that is essentially to give you eternal life in him and be like him. And we're going to talk about that a lot tomorrow. For now, what we're talking about is just wrapping our minds around the enormity of this promise and being able to say with Abraham, okay. I am in. I want to see how you're going to do that. And you know what? As we age and our, uh, grow up in our churches and our children grow up and their children grow up, I hope that we take joy in this life that the Word has given us, that we can look around and say, look what God has done. Not about, boy, I saw, I've been so busy in the ministry. I've been doing this. I've been doing that. And boy, the churches couldn't get by without me. No, it's just really about rejoicing in the grace of what God has done. Young people, look at our, our eldest and sit down and say, would you tell me the story of how you got there? And for our elders to come alongside the little ones and take them by the hand and say, hey, let me tell you about the future God has for you. Because what do we have in common? We have a faith that leads to righteousness, a trust, 
a fundamental belief that God can do the impossible. He can put life into dead bodies. He can take dust and make it eternal rejoicing. It's exciting. But what happens <laughs> in the very next chapter? What happens to, to poor Abraham? Uh, I'm not going to take us to each and every one of these verses, uh, but if you can kind of follow along, we're going to jump into ch chapter 16. Um, faith, especially the beginnings of faith, are just sort of like a rush, aren't they? They're just sort of this, this epiphany, this, this amazing moment. And then you sort of got to get back inside the tent and then get up and you got to shear some sheep and go make some fences. And, and after a while, years go by, what happens to faith? It can, if, if you don't nourish it, faith can drift. And all the other elements of life can sort of come in and steal away. And it's interesting, in chapter 16, it says, Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, verse 1, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. We had a Damascan, now we have an Egyptian. Egypt's still in the news. The poor cops that... 30, I think 30 Coptic Christians in Egypt were killed a couple Sundays ago. This story is a living story. These places, these people, these stories are still going on. It says, so Sarah said to Abraham, now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. Husbands, you listen to the voice of your wife? Most of the time, it's a really good idea. In fact, there's another time where God says, listen to her. Listen to Sarah. But this time, Sarah's got this idea. And I can just see him talking about, well, you know, the Lord didn't say that he was going to give me a child through Sarah. He says it's going to come through me. Here's a nice Egyptian gal. Just happens to be living in the house with us. <laughs> All kinds of bad news is going to come out of this idea. When faith begins... Now, see, polygamy actually at this point in time in history, in Israel's history, had not really been discussed a whole lot. If you go back and look at the stories before, the children of Seth, we really don't see them in, in polygamy much. We see it on Cain's side. Cain's great-great-great-grandson, Lamech. I think Jason's got a great sermon on Lamech. He was the first one. He had two wives. And from this, so I can see the culture all around Sarah and Abraham. They're already polygamists. But all of a sudden it enters into the people of God because they're like, well, how, we try to figure out how we can work out God's promise into our lives by us doing it. I got an idea. Whew. Brothers and sisters, when you get an idea... You better jump into the Bible fast. You better tell someone else to jump into the Bible with you. Because when the Bible talks about people getting bright ideas, you can almost count on bad things being around the corner. And boy, what happened? Abraham listened. Hagar became his concubine or his lesser wife is what a concubine is. And who was born of that? Ishmael, and who's Ishmael the father of? Islam. You know, Islam looks back to Ishmael as there. They look back to this story and say, no, it got turned around. 
Ishmael got the blessing, not Isaac. Is that still on the news? It says this Ishmael, he'll be a wild man. And God says, and I'll bless him for Abraham's sake. But boy, what an idea, because faith faltered. And we just know that we have a way of figuring out how God, how God's promise can be worked out according to our means. The very next chapter, Abraham gets a correction. Uh, the, the, the covenant of circumcision comes along. Uh, Ishmael's 13 years old. Little Ishmael is circumcised along with all the rest. And God comes to Abraham. The word of the Lord comes to Abraham again. Verse 15, it says, Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarah, but uh, Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her, and, and indeed, I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be the mother of nations. Kings of people shall come to her. And this is funny. And what happens in verse 17? I like the, the New American Standards uh, translation here. Abraham fell on his face and laughed. He didn't just laugh. He fell down laughing. Now, God hadn't told him that before. He said he's going to come through you. It's going to be like the stars. That's impossible enough. Now you're saying, wait a second. And he actually says, well, can't Ishmael live before you? Can't you do this through what I've managed to accomplish? And God's like, I'm going to bless, I'm going to bless uh, Ishmael. He says, but that's not the way we're going here. Because faith is about trusting in the impossible. And Sarah represents the impossible in Abraham's life. God said, no. Sarah, your wife, shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. The reason why the promise of faith goes from Abraham through Isaac and on is because it's always been about what God wants to do in us rather than what we think we can accomplish ourselves. It's the very next chapter, chapter 18, that God comes back again. And remember, he comes, and there's, he comes as three men. And Abraham jumps up to cook him, and he goes and gets the lamb, and he gets the milk, and he, he's putting this meal together. And while they're sitting there talking, he tells them, Sarah, about this time next year, is going to have a child. And it says, Sarah, who's in the back room, in the back of the tent, <laughs> she overheard it. And what does she do? She laughs. She, it almost gives you, while her husband fell down on his face laughing, uh, he says, she's, she's 90 years old. He's 100 years old. We're supposed to have kids? I like what she says. She says, uh, is there any, uh, verse 13, and the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? There's the question, brothers and sisters. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Anything? There's that germ of faith. What's difficult in your life? What's too difficult in your life? There's where the Lord wants to come in, in this place. 
Sarah said, She was listening at the tent door back in verse 10, which was behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing age. And Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? In other words, they're like, we're way past this stuff. Don't you love the frankness of the Bible? PG-13, kids. We're supposed to, I mean, much less get pregnant. We're talking about just enjoying ourselves here as a husband and wife. At 90 and 100 years old, it's like, a, you know, a pat on the head is, you know, good contact. And here there's something that's just beyond their thinking. And I love it because this is the word of life. This is God bringing life into dead bodies. Old dead bodies, dust, and something eternal is being brought forth from it. Jump with me to Romans. We'll, we'll wrap this up. A couple more verses, one in Romans and one in Philippians, and we'll, we'll close. Let's, let's look at Romans, the fourth chapter. Paul looks back on this. You know, Paul had a, a, was a deeply religious man. He, he, when he talks about his pedigree in Philippians, you know, he says, I was, a, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Pharisee. Righteousness according to the law, I, I was blameless. I had done it all. But Jesus comes along and blows Paul's mind because it's no longer really about what Paul, all the dictates not just of the Torah, but of the Talmud and all the, getting things just right. And Paul's like, you know, we're doing all this, but is there life in it? All of a sudden, Jesus comes along. This, this, this guy from Galilee comes along, and he's, he's crucified, which could not, you couldn't get worse humiliation from the standpoint of a good Jewish boy raised and taught by a rabbi like Gamaliel. You got a guy crucified, and then he comes back to life. He's resurrected. What are we dealing with here? You know, I don't care how good any of you are out there. You're not going to get resurrected. Dead bodies don't get back up. They just don't. And yet this Jesus appears to Paul. And it shattered everything Paul thought he understood. And Paul began to read this word of life in a whole new way. He began to read it with Christ at its center. See, this word of the Lord that came to Abraham, that was Jesus. That was was our Christ. That word of life was bringing life, sowing life all through Scripture. And here, Romans 4, Paul draws it all together. And listen to how he puts... Abraham's story, the story we just read, this story really about laughing, and I encourage you to laugh in the face of the impossibility because it's hilarious and wonderful. And Isaac is named after that laugh. We laughed, we laughed, and we're still laughing because of what God has done. And because God has done it, we know what He's going to do. 
He's going to lift us up into life. And this is what the word of life is all about, is to give us this promise and to encourage each other to believe it. Verse 17, as it is written, a father of many names, uh, nations have I made you in the presence of him whom he believed. He's speaking of Abraham believing in God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which, was, which does not exist. Here's where our faith is grabbing hold of. This one who calls things into being out of nothing. This one who brings up the dead to life. This one who takes old people and brings forth an Isaac that will bless all of the world. And we're here because of that Isaac. And who is Isaac's descendant? Jesus Christ. And he's still calling us to trust him in this impossibility. It says, and in hope, Abraham, in hope against hope, he believed. I like this. It's not just enough to say in hope once. In hope against hope. Hope upon hope. Hope that has to remind itself to be hopeful because this thing is too big for us. Resurrection, the righteousness of God that leads to everlasting life is too big for us. We need Jesus Christ to fill us up that word of life that can bring all of this to pass. He hoped without hope to become that he might be a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken. There's that breath. This is beautiful because it's the breath of God. It's spoken of God. And it was spoken to Abraham and it changed his life and I think it's changing ours. Amen? Is it changing our life? Amen. It's changing our life. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised he was able to perform. Therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness. I love that. Keep those two P's in your head. Promise, performance. Promise, performance. God promises and God performs. And what's in the middle? What's our part in the middle? <sighs> hope against hope. Believing, trusting. Yeah, my wife's 90 years old. Yeah, I'm 100. I lost my teeth 30 years ago. I know he's going to bring a baby out of this. I know he's going to fill this up with life. And so I'm going to be strong. I'm going to grow stronger in faith and not wax weak, even though everything around me in our parallel culture is saying, give up and just do what you want to do. The word of life comes in and says, don't believe. Grow stronger in faith. And it was credit to him. This righteousness that brings life. Listen to what Paul says next. Now, not for his sake only was it written. Not for his sake only it was written. But for our sake, to those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. You know, they're of a similar kind of thing, aren't they? Raising Jesus from the dead, bringing a dead man to life, and, and, and putting a child in in Sarah at the age of 90 years old. It's of the same thing. See, this is how God is. He comes along and looks at life in the most 
unlikely places, and he goes, and there's life. We must not fail to look for this life in unlikely places, brothers and sisters, beginning with ourselves. Because we know ourselves. And we know what we're afraid of. And we know how easy it is to lose faith and to doubt. And I think it's not really even about doubting God as much. Sometimes it's just about doubting ourselves. <sighs> just, is there any hope? We must be strong in faith and not think that way because, see, God loves these impossibilities like us. I had a really unusual email come to me. I'll share it. came to the Church of God comment box, and they used to come to me. And a young man said, are you a gay-friendly church? That's all he said. Where does your head go when you hear that? I thought, well, here is either a really radical conservative guy that's trying to test me that I'm conservative enough because we don't want to be a gay-friendly church. We want to be conservative. Or, on the other hand, you've got someone who's really liberal who's testing me to see if I'm culturally relevant for me to come as I am and to do what I want. And that was where my head was at. And I was thinking, I just prayed, Lord, I have no idea here what's going on. I need to reply to this fellow, Stephen. And I prayed as I'm writing this letter. And I tried to explain where our church, our understanding. That, and I said, we're a church that holds the Bible to be true. And that Bible tells us that all of us were created in his image and that all of us are fallen and need a savior. I hope we're gay friendly to the extent that you can come in as you are and learn that and be transformed by God's grace. And I said, do you mind telling me a little bit about yourself and why you asked this question? Five hours later, I was on the phone with this young man who had been living in the homosexual lifestyle for many years and finally couldn't stand it anymore. He said, I don't care what you see on the news. I don't care what people say. He said, it's so lonely. It's so painful. It's so terrible. And he said, I just wanted to know if I could come. He says, because my mannerisms are kind of feminine and it upsets people. And I, I cried. <laughs> I was crying talking to this. He's not a young man. He's my age. He's been celibate for 14 years fighting this battle. Because see, in himself, there's an impossibility. But he's trusting God. We have got to be a people that are ready to see God's word of life breathing in to people in impossible circumstances. 
Is there anything worse for us as Christians to see the impossibility of our own life and yet cling to the life of the Word that is, that is the God of life for our own sake and then look at someone else who is impossible in a different way and say, I don't want to be around that. That's not welcome. That really is impossible. Let's close. In Philippians 2. Philippians 2 is a beautiful chapter. It's, it's, the, it's, it's the chapter that Paul talks about how Jesus, he says, have this mind in you. Jesus was in the very form of God, and yet he left God's likeness, and he came to earth as a man. He, he found himself as a man. He humbled himself like a servant. He died on the cross, and God raised and exalted him, gave him a name of every name, which is Lord, which is Yahweh, which is God's own name. Jesus is God's own person come into our lives for the sake of our lives. And it's right after that in Philippians 2 that Paul says something in short, very similar to what he said where we started in 2 Timothy 3. He says, So then, my beloved, verse 12, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work this out. And this salvation is fundamentally about coming back again and again to the Word, having that breath breathed into us, believing, and trusting, and obeying this, this dynamic again and again and again. And then he goes on to say, Sister, you'll like this, and I need to catch your name. Deborah, Sister Deborah. Listen to what he says here. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do His good pleasure. Work out your salvation, because it's God that's working in you to do His good will and pleasure. And then he says, do all things without grumbling, grumbling and disputing, so that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. This is where we started at the first part of chapter 3 of 2 Timothy. Troublesome times, a perverse, perverse nation, perverse generation, a culture that's a mess, impossibilities all around us. And yet, he says, among whom you appear as what? Lights in the world. Why are we lights in the world? Because this word of life has filled us up with hope that, you know what? That crooked generation, there's hope for it. For it. If we do what? He says, hold fast. And this word fast can be translated a couple ways too. Fast or forth. Some of your translations might say, hold forth. This says, hold fast. I say, let's do both. Hold on to the word of life. Don't let go of it. On the other hand, as you're holding on tight, hold it forth for the world to see because there's no hope for this crooked and perverse generation. There's no hope for this perilous time that is lovers of self more than lovers of God. If the breath of God is not held out to them if it's not treasured by us. 
because it is this word that has that hope that tells us again and again and again. I used one story. It's in every story. And it's meant to bring life in dead places. Amen? Amen. Amen.